Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and Alfa Romeo topped the second day of pre-season testing with Joe Guan Yu, while Red Bull continued its strong start. But McLaren has admitted it hasn't hit its development goals, with Oscar Piastri and Lando Norris struggling on track. But what does that mean for its 2023 hopes? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to review day two in Bahrain is Scott mitchell Malm. Well, Scott, good to be back on the podcast sofa at the end of another day. The Bahrain circuit, Alfa Romeo, set for the World Championship then. Yeah, obviously it was uh, Joe Guan Yu that got to do the, um, the the headline grabbing lap times today. But on on this evidence, we're um, not going to be visiting Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner too much this year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, obviously, they're not going to be uh, up the front. That was a time set on the C5 tyres. But the Alpha looking pretty good. I'm sure we'll get back onto them later on. But the amazing thing is how quickly everything moves in testing, isn't it? We talked about our first impressions yesterday. Some things that have happened today have confirmed what we saw in some other areas, the the storylines have changed a little bit and we've seen some kind of contrary information and we've got a much better picture today than we did yesterday. Yes, um, obviously lap times are still very much, you're not just taking pinches of salt, you're, you're, you're throwing salt at them. Um, but because, because there's been so much running in, in general, I mean, we did have another red, red flag today, so I think that's just two now, isn't it, for, for the test after... George Russell's hydraulics failure. Um, but I thought it was interesting because the amount of sort of mileage that every team did, did I, I think certainly two thirds into the day, it looked like it was dropping versus day one with the rationale for that being that once you've got the majority of those systems checks and uh, I want to say that the basic short and medium runs out of the way, Today felt like a lot, a lot more like the teams get really getting into the detailed work on on the setup, understanding their cars more, and that meant a few spells off track for for some teams. It meant a lot of setup changes. It meant car behaviour and what we could. I went trackside twice today. I, I went trackside yesterday evening as well. So I've had nearly three hours, I think, just trackside watching the cars. And it meant that the the, the behaviour of the cars and and the impressions that they left shifted from yesterday to this afternoon to this evening. But I think we are starting to get a, a, a few hints. I certainly want to, wouldn't want to suggest them from the uh, from the lap times or, or, or longest stints that we've seen from cars because that's not what I've been following. Obviously, fortunately, we do have someone who, who has been following that. <laughs> Yes, we'll hear from uh, Mark Hughes in, in a moment. But it's it's worth just running down the top times. Joe said a 1 minute 31.610 second lap time. That was on the C5 tyres. Verstappen was four hundredths down, but on the C3 tyres, so slower tyres. Alonso was third, 0.595 seconds down. Nick De Vries in the AlphaTauri, 0.6 seconds down. And Nico Hülkenberg, fifth for Haas, 0.856 seconds down. That was on the C4, so was... De Vries and Alonso's time was on the C3. So that just runs through the top times. Doesn't mean a great deal, but just means people know what we're talking about. But before we get into Mark's analysis, I thought it was worth also 
going through who's done the most mileage because that's always interesting after two days. I know you've not looked close at these. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who do you think's done the most laps over day one and two combined? Team. 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 I'm going to say mileage. I'm going to say Williams. Spot on. 303 laps for Williams. And go, I guess the least? You can. I think this one's a bit easier. I <laughs> you think, don't look convinced. I think, I think this will be... Alpine. Correct. 221 laps for Alpine. That's nine less than Aston Martin managed. So yeah, Williams and then Alpha Tauri are the ones who have done the most mileage. Aston Martin, Alpine down the bottom. Red Bull a healthy third with 280 laps and Ferrari 274 laps. Mercedes 250. Not massive spreads, but that's a fairly significant difference between Williams on 303 and Alpine down on 221. That's a massive, massive difference. If you think back, not too too many years in the past, 100 laps a day was a, was a good target for testing. So Williams has, has got nearly a full day extra running con- convention of, of conventional running on, on, on Alpine. With only three days of testing, that's a huge difference. I, I, I do actually think Alpine re- risks a little bit going into next week being slightly underprepared. The reason I picked Williams, the reason I, th- I felt that Williams would be the answer to your question I spoke to someone at Williams today who said that the engineers were very, very happy with their opening day. And it was being talked about in the team as one of the one of the best test days that they've had in many, many years in terms of just how well the car run, what they were able to get through, where they were at the end of the day. Now, the car's not, it's not mega. I, I think that they'll be fighting for the mid-lower midfield places. But if you consider that they started a year ago, miles off the back, that is progress. So the car looks reliable. It looks better balanced on track. So pretty good test. Williams, the, uh, so Will- Williams are the winners of testing. <laughs> Alfa well, Romeo, the quickest and Williams are the winners. Exactly. Who saw that one coming? Yeah, it certainly looks fairly solid for Williams. It's good when you get through that mileage because it does mean that you're in better shape. And of course, because the first race is in Bahrain as well, it's a very nice position to be in because it gives you the chance to have that positive start at the track where you've racked up the mileage and really refined things. It means you can get into those optional parts of the run program that will help you but aren't necessarily mission critical and that's where you can perhaps eke out a little bit more performance but let's now hear from Mark Hughes because as always he's been tracking every single lap time posted during the day cross-referencing it with tyres and conditions and working out what we know we're going to get into McLaren's struggles shortly so that's the ideal place to start for him and he's also thrown in some of his impressions of the other cars where do the numbers put McLaren so far? Well, in the morning, with the track still reasonably quick, Lando Norris did a nine-lap run on C2 tyres at much the same time that Sergio Perez was doing a 15-lap run on the Red Bull on the same compound. It's as near as we've got to a direct comparison to the car, which is so far blitz-testing. The numbers say the McLaren averaged 1.77 seconds per lap slower. If that deficit translated into qualifying next week, it would be over seven-tenths bigger than McLaren's average deficit to Red Bull last year. We look at the best single lap set by each car. The gap is just over one and a half seconds, and Ospia 3 and Max Verstappen set their respective times when the track was at a similar pretty high temperature of around 36, 37 degrees. That and the fact that Piastri's post-red flag stint was significantly slower than other pick Asley's Alpine on the same compound tyre suggests that McLaren was absolutely right to sound a note of caution about its early season prospects and insists we'll only see the real car from around race 4 or 5. 
things might be pretty tough until then on the evidence of today for them. So how did the rest of them appear to stack up? Well, McLaren's not alone in suffering a troubled couple of days. Mercedes is struggling to balance its W14 to the extent that's not even been worth extending the car to find out its true pace. Time needs to be spent on finding a setup to tame its rear end. On the numbers, currently it's no way. We would only have a chance to begin to assess that if George Russell had completed the long run he was just beginning when the hydraulics failed. Ferrari's in better shape than that as of Friday, but is also experimenting with where the car's happiest setup place might be. Just it's not hitting the track and immediately setting it alight on the way the Red Bull is. Consequently, we're not really comparing like with like when looking at a Red Bull, which is fast and balanced as soon as it, you know, as soon as it gets going. On the numbers, the second fastest car at the moment is not the Ferrari, it's actually the Aston Martin, albeit seemingly still around about half a second adrift of the, the Red Bull. Of the others, Alfa Romero looks the best of what was the midfield. Let's see if it still comprises the same teams as last year, but what was the midfield of last year, you'd say on the evidence we have so far, the Alfa looks the most consistently quick. The Williams has significantly improved and about on par with the Haas. Uh, the Alpine's a curious one. It's uh, having so far showed no single lap pace at all and spending much of its time being adjusted in the garage and then coming out for two or three laps and going back in again. But then Pierre Gasly did an extended run immediately after the restart from the red flag and that was actually pretty strong. So that might, things might be starting to come together for that and we're still awaiting to see any, any glimpses of form from the, um, the understeering Alpha Tari. That's how it looks as of today, but um, these things can change quickly. Let's get into McLaren now in detail. It was an interesting day for them. Piastri was ninth fastest on the C3 tyres, about one and a half seconds down, and Norris 3.9 seconds down on the C2s after his morning's running. And we should point out all the usual caveats about lap times. They don't really mean a great deal. Varying conditions as well in Bahrain between running in the heat of the day and later on once it's dark. So don't read too much into that. But it, it certainly shows that McLaren isn't super fast. We already had a few reservations from watching Trackside yesterday, but Zach Brown gave us reason for more concerns today. Yes, um, we'd also heard at the car launch that they weren't entirely happy with where the launch car had got to. And the reason for that we've discovered today is that Brown said in the mid uh, midday press conference that they they've missed some of their goals uh, for on development for for the car. So they've they've missed some of the targets that they set, which is is never a good thing. And it's quite rare for a team to admit that publicly. Zach Zach said that it's as simple as they they realised that they were were behind and they thought it would just be be honest. I think that's to be honest quite sensible expectation management and messaging there's no point in having everyone talk you up as oh you're going to be best of the rest or whatever and then your car gets on track and it's very clearly fifth or sixth best at best so I kind of see why they wanted to get on top of it and just make sure that nobody got carried away but it's not a good sign is it I think I think for them it's it's what they expected and speaking to the team boss Andrea Stella at the end of the day he said that they there are no surprises. This is what they expected. Everything correlates with, with with the data, so it's all fine on that. So McLaren are where they thought they'd be, but I have to say, even though I did believe what they were saying at the launch, where they were being realistic, pessimistic, whatever you want to call it, I didn't expect to come here and see the car look as difficult as it has done for the first day and a half, and it looked better trackside in the evening 
but you were there with me in the audience when Stella was speaking at the end of the day and I got the impression he was I mean there were reasons for it conditions changed fuel loads probably changed I think they took a bit of fuel out and in the first half of the day Lando Norris was using a lot of used tires I'm guessing Piastri wasn't used just just relying on used tires at the end of the day as well but Stella also suggested that the track conditions might have flattered things a little bit because he suggested that that kind of thing can mask the the inherent weaknesses of, of, of the package it sounded like what we've seen in the other part of testing so far is more of what that McLaren's like and it just looked a little bit better than it really is in the evening and it's interesting McLaren are continuing to set themselves up for this slow start they're still not downbeat for the whole season they've still downbeat for the start they've got an upgrade around about race four Andrea Stella did say that there was some it's not going to be a transformed B-spec car or anything but there's some significant changes to some of the really performance sensitive areas so they're hinting it could be quite a big step now I asked him about the targets they'd missed that Zach Brown referred to and he said well actually we've pretty much hit all of them except one which he then said was aerodynamic efficiency now that's a pretty broad church and a pretty significant thing but he did refer to the fact that they found something quite late in the day that explains why this upgrade package is coming a bit late and I think it means we do have to in terms of judging McLaren season very much wait for race four it's due for and then the run of races after that to get a fair read on where they really are yeah and Stella said that obviously what you get what you have in F1 at the track is really where you were two or three months ago in terms of development and I suspect that that two or three months ago was also where they pulled the plug on this car. So I think whatever it is that they've gone and pursued, which will presumably relate, obviously the key part will be the underfloor, but presumably side pods, we're going to be talking aerodynamic surfaces here rather than, I don't think they're going to turn up in Baku with a completely different suspension arrangement. They might make some changes if if they can within the regulations within the cost cap, but I think we're talking aero services here. I think they've got to the end of last year, realised that they're going down a cul-de-sac in terms of development, or they've got a lot, they've got downforce they can't use, or they've got downforce that's just creating loads of drag and they can't shed the drag. It'll be one of those things. And they've gone, we need to park this and we need to go in this direction now. We just have to lock this in as the launch spec and get this other route to a point where we can put it on the actual car as early in the season as possible. And that's why they're probably, they don't, they're not talking optimistically, but they're not sounding pessimistic because they see it as a longer term thing. They can save their season still. It's not a problem. And I think there is there is some logic to what they're saying in terms of the, the confidence they have in why this upgrade package could work. Because I can understand why if someone's listening to this, they might think, well, if they've missed their target on the launch car, why should we believe that the upgrade that they're going to bring at race four or whenever it appears is going to be brilliant and move them up the order? Is it actually going to be anything more? Because the other teams are all going to be developing as well. But there's a difference between missing your targets because you've blundered or because your aero team's no good or your facilities suck or whatever the reasons are and missing your targets because you didn't go down the right development path, you've switched to it a bit late and you know that that's all coming just a little bit later. 
And there should be some low-hanging fruit there to make bigger gains than other teams will be making if they are pursuing a new direction. Because by definition, they'll be tapping into a lot of untapped potential instead of trying to find small gains. And they did say that the car is correlating well as it is, so it's working kind of as expected. It's just those expectations, as we heard at the launch, were tempered and... They accepted that, yeah, they didn't recognise this direction that they're going in with that upgrade early enough. So they're not presenting this as some genius discovery for them. They said, yeah, we were too slow on this. And they said, yeah, to achieve our competition targets this year, which really that team, I don't think it would be a failure if they don't get fourth, but they need to be in that mix and not lose too much ground. They, they need to be up there at the front of the midfield because for all the stuff about waiting for the new wind tunnel and the other big infrastructure things... They need to be at a good level this year as the, the jumping It's off a failure point. if they finish sixth. If they get beaten by Aston Martin, it's a failure. Yeah. And they, they cannot lose to Aston Martin. Exactly. And you've got Alpine that I would, right now, setting aside what's going on in testing, expect Alpine to be able to beat them. Aston Martin are a threat. Alfa Romeo, as Mark referred to, okay, they're not going to be at the front, but that car's looking pretty decent. So... We're going to have that congested midfield, so it doesn't take much to slide fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, potentially. So they do have to be careful. I think where things will get problematic for McLaren is if that upgrade comes in and it doesn't work, it doesn't produce the performance they expected. That's when they will get very, very worried, I think, because that that's when they've got something wrong and they need to think about bigger changes in how they're doing things. So it's going to make McLaren a very interesting team to follow. But I think the first three race weekends, certainly, it's going to be a damage limitation exercise, isn't it? It's going to be pick up a few points here and there, and that's job done. Well, I'm worried that it's the first three races are going to be very similar to last year because we're seeing ice. They've changed so much on the car, and they, they will have improved, even if they stopped this car two or three months ago, they will have improved it. So it won't be identical in what it's doing to last year's car, but the 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 consequences seem very similar. And I think we touched on this yesterday, so I apologise for going over old ground. But it was the same again today, going trackside. In fact, it was worse when I went trackside during the day today when Norris was still driving, and the car looked awful into turns nine and ten. It looked really disjointed. It looked unsettled in a way that no other no other car did. Um, the fact that I'm, I, I think I now know for sure that that car was was running very high fuel at the time, which is what I, what my suspicion was, um, because it 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 was almost like it was just bottoming out or something on entry that other cars weren't doing, and it may well be because it was just running heavier than a lot of them. But it just looked ungainly. It looked difficult. It looked inconsistent, and that's a lot of what we heard from the McLaren last year, and then. There was a comment that Oscar Piastri made in the press conference in the middle of the day where he said it feels like similar limitations to last year. And he said that there's obviously some time in himself because he's still trying to learn what the car needs and adapt to that. And that felt a little bit Daniel Ricciardo-ish, to be honest. It, it's, and I, I just fear that for McLaren, it's going to be the first three races of Lando Norris doing Lando Norris things and and trying to do his best to drive around the problems and he'll probably get some good results in that. Well, maybe the second car struggles a bit because there are these awkward limitations on it. Piastri coming from a very different point than Ricardo was. So if he is struggling to adapt with it, it's because he's just inexperienced, I think, rather than going through exactly the same problem Ricardo had. 
so there aren't they aren't the same exact causes. I just fear that until they get this upgraded car and it, and it works as they say it will work, is it just going to be a bit of deja vu? Yeah, and McLaren need to get away from the weird handling cars that they've had for quite a while now. Lando Norris last year, when we sat down and spoke to him at the end of the season, talked about it being on the knife edge, and he felt the primary reason why he was doing so much better than Daniel Ricciardo was that he could handle the car when it slipped off that knife edge, which it did constantly, and kind of improvise around it and adapt, whereas Ricardo really wanted to know what it was going to do. And that knife edge was so pointy that you couldn't avoid the car falling off it endlessly. So I think McLaren had to be very careful about treating kind of Norris as the norm on that car. Now, Norris certainly did much better with it than Ricardo did. It's not, uh, as I've said before, that ultimately the failure at McLaren is Ricardo's in difficult circumstances, but they have to not look at that as well. Ricardo just can't deal with it and Norris was fine. I think And Piastri will get there, so therefore we'll be okay. Yeah, there's the danger that Norris was doing extraordinary things to keep that car as quick as it was. And that's not something you can rely on because th- this isn't, you know, a, a Verstappen type situation where the car, he likes the, the rear ends to have a bit, a bit more lively on entry, get not have that understeer and he can manipulate it and work really well. This is a McLaren that's genuinely tricky to drive and Norris is able to hang on to very well. So they've got to be very, very careful with that. So it's a long-term story, this McLaren one. We're going to keep an eye on them over the early races and see how they get on when that upgrade comes, which is due for the fourth race of the season. Shall we get on to another British team whose best days are in the past and are working back towards them in Williams? Because James Vowles had I thought you were going to say Mercedes. Well, we'll get on to Mercedes (laughs) in a moment as well. But I wanted to ask you about James Vowles because he put in his first proper public appearance as Williams team principal. Now, he has spoken to the media before, but that was before he joined. He only started work on Monday. I actually thought he came across very, very measured and impressively in that he he was talking and presenting himself well, but he wasn't avoiding the seriousness of Williams's plight. Yeah, I think he, he I think he painted a very good picture of where Williams is. He, um, I think he, I don't want to say let slip because I. They obviously don't mind this information being out there, but Williams have never officially communicated that along with losing the team principal and technical director at the end of last year, they actually axed their head of aerodynamics as well. Um, and they haven't replaced him yet. So they're in, they're recruiting for, I would say, the two most senior technical positions in a team, technical director and head of aero. That I mean, certainly two extremely serious and senior and important positions. And and Val's mentioned that today um, that that they're, that they're having to to find someone for those for those jobs. So he knows that their te- that senior technical structure is not in place. Now they've got obviously uh, a system that's working in the short term, making sure that everything's ticking over basically. But to to really crack on and make sure that you know this doesn't impact the team in the medium and long term they really need to get those people in place and they need to be the right people he emphasized that and I just felt that he came across as someone who is genuinely enthusiastic about the the role he has clearly wanted to be a team principal for a long time now he keeps talking about how he was effectively preparing himself and trying to build the skills needed to do it and he's very excited about being at Williams. He's saying all the right things about their enthusiasm and their motivation and their skills. But he was very, very blunt about the fact that that team is not where it needs to be and there are obvious deficiencies and it's just going to be a case of chipping away at them. I got a little bit of a hint that he isn't 
hugely happy with what he's inherited in terms of what's been going on there for the last two years. Which, if that's the case, if, if I, I'm reading between the lines, so I might have got it wrong. But if that's the case, it confirms one of my fears, which I I do fear that Capito and FX de Mason, that axis of power, might have wasted not just time, but a lot of that Dalton resource. Because my big question was, what is Val's inheriting there in terms of does he have to unpick some bad decisions that have been made? You know, should that money have been spent elsewhere? Have they invested in the right resources? Have the facilities been done in the right way? Fowles knows what a world championship winning team looks like. Williams is not a world championship winning team and won't look like that. But has it been made worse before it can be made to get better? Yeah, there's a long way to go there. I don't think it's any surprise to know it's going to be a tough season for Williams. It looks like, as we've said, they've got a useful enough car to work with that can probably do a bit better than last year. That's that's fine. That's about all you could ask for, really. Yeah, it hasn't but, made a big leap, but no. it's, a, it's, a, it's progress. But it's that technical structure and... You know, there have been there have been so many technical restructures at Williams over the years. So many of them. And can you name them all? Well, in terms of technical leadership, obviously well, when I, You quiz me at the start, so I'm quizzing you. Oh, now. Obviously Patrick Head was still around when I started doing Formula One, although Sam Michael was sort of taking over that. Very sharp guy, Sam Michael knew his stuff, but the technical leadership there didn't work. There are a lot of other problems going on in the background, obviously the financial difficulties for Williams that have been there ever since they parted company with BMW really and lost the HP sponsorship as a direct response. So they've always been kind of playing catch up. So yeah, we had the Sam Michael era, he moved on, we had Mike Coughlin there as technical director, Mark Gillen was there at the same time as well as uh, as kind of engineering leader. Uh, he left, Pat Simmons obviously came in as chief technical officer, that went quite well, that was for when they got back up to third with the Mercedes engine. He moved on, as I understand it, partly because he was promised there'd be certain resources if they achieved certain things. Unfortunately, the team couldn't do, couldn't honour those promises because their financial situation was difficult because of the prevailing commercial conditions in Formula One. Nobody's fault, but obviously Simmons felt that wasn't really where going where he wanted it to. So they squandered all that progress and obviously had the Paddy Lowe era. We had the no technical director era. <laughs> We've had FX de Maison. So this is a team that has, has really, it's not had the technical leadership it's needed since you go back to the days when it was Head and Newey. So that was the start of 97 that, <laughs> that Newey moved on. The 97 Williams was the last car he had a part in. So yeah. That's um, not a... It's not a coincidence either, is it? That was the last car that he had a part in. And when when was the when was the last time Williams won anything? Exactly. Well, last world championship was indeed 1997. They did win races in the BMW era. It came close in 2003 with Montoya. And obviously there was the tyre change. It caused a bit of controversy there. But yeah, overall that BMW era flattered to deceive a bit. So yeah, there's aero weaknesses, the primary thing in that Williams team. I actually think trackside and engineering-wise, they're pretty good. They generally get the best out of the car but I think it's it's that at base obviously you can always improve in all areas but you need a car that's just stronger in terms of the whole concept and the aero etc etc so hopefully they'll make some progress there but yeah I think Val's will be focusing on a lot of those things rather than the on-track performance for the moment we'll get back to the pod in a moment but first a word about our partner Grammarly no matter what kind of work you do how you communicate is key All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. 
I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, let's get on to some of the other teams. Obviously, Mercedes was interesting now. We were talking yesterday about the car looking quite sharp on turning, and it looked like it was kind of all right, but it, a little bit more concerning today for Mercedes, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I, from what I saw trackside, it was, it was causing, uh, when Hamilton was driving during the daytime, um, this was just before the lunch break, there were too many times where it was just looking a little bit loose on, on the exit and he was having to correct a slide mid to exit. Now, certainly one time when he came through, that, that was partly because he clobbered the inside curb. But then there were others where it was just it was just moving around a little bit too much. And that sort of on-the-nose nature that we saw yesterday on the first day of the test went from, I think, went from being very positive on the front and occasionally over-rotating to just looking a little bit oversteery today. And then when we spoke to George Russell at lunchtime, he said that he feels that that's a consequence of the balance shift that they've achieved with the W14. But And he sees it as a good thing, but it does mean that they just need to sort of find a happier medium now. They didn't really get to do that with a long run at the end of the day because of the problem. But the messaging from the team at the end of the day was was quite pessimistic. They don't really understand where the balance has gone. They confirmed what you could see trackside, that they don't have the car in a good place today balance-wise. It seems to have gone away from them. They don't really have an answer, or they certainly didn't have an answer at the end of the day. That suggests to me that they do have a car that maybe what we saw yesterday, maybe we interpreted it slightly incorrectly. And maybe instead of having a car that's got a particularly strong front end, maybe that car might just have a slightly weak rear end. Or maybe it was just the track conditions. I, I, I think it was a bit warmer today. Maybe that moved it away and made that rear weaker. It's, it's very hard to say. Those are the answers that I think Mercedes themselves will be trying to discover this evening. Well, Andrew Shovlin there, Traxxel Engineering Director, basically said they struggled to get their car balanced well across the changing conditions. So they're having a big look into that. George Russell was obviously talking down their early season chances again, singing from the same hymn sheet as Toto Wolff at the, at the launch. So yeah, interesting to keep an eye on Mercedes. I wouldn't be getting too excited about them in terms of being a, a championship challenging force right at the start of the season, but obviously they're still expecting to come on strong as the season progresses. Yeah, when I walked away from trackside at the very end of the day, the way I saw it was Red Bull looks the best, but the Ferrari, when it's, when it's there also looks really good, close enough to the Red Bull that fuel loads and engine modes would swing it. That's how close I think Ferrari is. It looked like that to me. I was watching it at turn 11 and 
they look very, very similar. The only real difference you could see is that Leclerc was just taking a bit more curb and unsettling the car a bit more, which very fractionally was compromising the stability of the car and delaying the throttle. But that was very minor. So the Ferrari looks decent. But then compared to yesterday, when I thought that certainly the way they looked, I thought the Mercedes and the Ferrari was nip and tuck. Now it looks like it's Red Bull, very close Ferrari. Not a big gap, but then I think the Mercedes is third best at best at the moment. And that could change if they get on top of the balance, certainly. But I have a little bit less confidence in that car now than I did 24 hours ago. It, it doesn't quite look on the Ferrari level, which in turn doesn't quite look on the Red Bull level. And we have to throw in Aston Martin into this mix. I'm not saying they're going to be right up the front, but the Aston Martin has looked good. Obviously, Mark Hughes re- referenced the, the pace is looking strong for that. The car looks good on track. So Aston Martin having a pretty good test, despite the fact their mileage isn't quite as good as they'd hope. Every time that car came on track, didn't matter what compound it was, didn't matter what corner I was watching at, because I was at turn nine and 10 for a bit. And then in the evening, I went over and was looking back at turn one from turn two. So I got to see the exit of one the change of direction and then the flick through two and three. It didn't matter where I was, what time of day it was, what the track conditions were like, probably what fuel was in the car. There were different degrees of how impressive it looked, but it always looked impressive. It was the best, uh, it was the best car other than the Red Bull and the, and the Ferrari at um, turns one and two in terms of being able to carry some speed into the apex, but then just had that nimbleness to get the rear rotated and keep it to the right of the track quite tight through turn one, which is obviously very important because that sets your run up through turn two and then up, up, up the hill. Um, and it just looked low fuss. L- yesterday there was an element of Alonso pushing visibly very hard. So there was a degree of thinking, well, have they just take, have they got taken a bit of fuel out? Is this a bit more of a push? Is that where the lap times come from? Because he's visibly, visibly trying. There was less of that try-hardness in the Aston Martin today. Alonso obviously having a full day behind the wheel. But it still looked really good. And again, I might have said this yesterday, I don't want to get tricked by them maybe doing glory runs or whatever to ease a bit of pressure or get some headlines. That's not what this team has historically done. I don't want to get tricked. But it's hard. Every, everything about that car looks good, and I think, I think they have been the most impressive all round in the midfield. And of course, we've got that ongoing story there with their driver lineup. In that, Lance Stroll is obviously not participating in the test. Felipe Drugovic will drive tomorrow morning, so he gets another half day. He'll have had two half days in the car. It, we don't know for sure. There's a lot of talk going around about exactly what. Lance's injuries I can't maybe that however everything we're hearing is consistent enough to suggest it would be a surprise if he's ready for the Bahrain Grand Prix oh, I can't see him racing next week at all and I find it really surprising that they're dragging their heels over this I mean they're putting Drogovic in for another half day I, 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 that leads me to believe that Stroll won't race next week and that they'll put Drogovic in but if that's the case why not just say now if Lance doesn't make it which looks unlikely Felipe will be driving I mean then maybe they're saying that internally so that he can just crack on like Felipe can crack on and get ready but it just feels like it's been handled weirdly because they've got a situation now where their reserve driver who is a rookie 
might be making his debut in Formula One next week and they're giving him a one out of three days of testing. They haven't even given him the one and a half and his first half day was impacted by an electrical issue. Djokovic is not going to be ready for his debut next week. And that could be significant because if that car's as good as it like as a it decent looks, car, yeah. And so yeah. even someone thrown in like that for their Grand Prix debut, he's a good driver, Djokovic. He's F two champion, of course. So it's it's not a, a completely wasted car. It, it, he is a driver who, with a bit of prep, is perfectly capable. It's not Holkenberg jumping into a car that's not getting out of Q one in twenty twenty two, is it? Yeah, exactly. It's very very different to that. So yeah, slightly surprised by what's going on there. There does seem to be a bit of confusion even within parts of the team, but. Hopefully they've got things a little bit more clear now. But yeah, I'm not saying 100%. Who knows? Lance Stroll could be back. But everything we're hearing points to, yeah, not being ready. Not saying you're going to be out for the season or something. But Bahrain Grand Prix and, who knows, maybe Saudi as well could be tricky for him. Yeah, I mean, the the, the team have confirmed that he's got a wrist injury. And obviously you hear that there might be more, maybe shoulder or whatever. But even if it's just, even if it's, quote unquote just his wrists Saudi is not the kind of track I want to be rushing back for because it's so easy to have a crash there but it's also really physical yeah exactly yeah I think that would be um a bit risky but again wrist injuries can be a very very broad (laughs) church as well so all we can say is uh is get well soon to (laughs) Lance Stroll and yeah if Djokovic does get in for his F1 debut in Bahrain I'm sure he'll give it a good Go. Who haven't we talked about? Haas we haven't really mentioned. It's not a huge amount to say about Haas. Not in a bad way. Just they're plugging away, doing all right. The drivers seem fairly content. So it's going all right there. car looked better today than it looked yesterday. There is still, when I see it trackside, the Haas is one of the cars that has the most notable amount of mid-corner understeer. Um, But not in a way that seems to make the car look bad. It doesn't then... You know, it's the drivers aren't then backing out of it to then try and make the round the rest of the corner. It just looks like a a trait of the car that is is being managed at the time. Um, the only thing I would say of note at Haas is um, if anyone's interested to know how Hulkenberg's getting on, I think he's readjusted back to F one seamlessly. He he looks really good. He's confident on track. He's hustling the car, and even Gunter Steiner, who doesn't pass around compliments um, with, particularly freely said that he has been impressed by just Hulkenberg looks like he's been with the team for a, for a full year. Yeah, to be honest, Nico was saying tonight, people were asking about whether he's getting enough preparation. He said, well, you can always have more, but he, he looks raring to go. I think if he said to him, you know what, tomorrow is qualifying for the Bahrain Grand Prix. He'd say, yeah, we'll do that. Let's get on with it. I think he just wants to get out I there and he, race. He, didn't he joked that he, um, he has pressed a few wrong buttons on the steering wheel, but fortunately the car's not exploded yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's... He's also very relaxed about it. This is an almost unexpected return to Formula One for him. And I think he's certainly enjoying it. He says he hasn't particularly changed his mindset or anything, but I think he's seeing this as a bonus and approaching it in the right way. And I think he'll do a good job for that team. Alpha Tari, as Mark mentioned, a bit understeery today. It looked a little bit uh, more lively at the rear end briefly yesterday when I saw it, but again, changing conditions, etc. So Alpha Tari again nothing terrible it's not looking it's not looking stunning for them I was hoping that that team might be able to take a bit of a bigger step after last year's difficulties yeah it it's a strange one to judge because sometimes it comes past and you think that looks just really underwhelming and then sometimes it comes past and you're like actually that that looked quite nice it's it just feels 
on balance really middle of the road but i think i'd rather have a car that comes past and every time i think oh yeah that looks fine like the Haas. whereas the alfa is just like it feels a bit hit and miss i feel like they're in that lower part of the midfield i feel like they'll be scrapping with williams and whoever ends up at the bottom of that midfield group which could be Haas, but i'm not getting the dark horse vibes from Haas that we were getting 12 months ago yeah and it's going to be congested in that area as well it's going to be very very small swing so it's difficult to sift that i don't think we'll see anyone miles off the back i think we'll see it quite congested so yeah it's going to be tightly fought and i imagine some teams will rise and fall with uh, with the track briefly finish off on alpine obviously we've mentioned the fact they haven't had a huge amount of running esteban ocon said he missed a bit of mileage this morning because there were some setup changes and things that took longer than expected it was all fine no big problems but there seem to have been a a few little things going on there that have not made it perfectly smooth yeah it's um it's been a it's been an okay test it's it's not it's not been great from that reliability point of view uh, I didn't see enough of the car yesterday. I think I mentioned that on the podcast yesterday. It was one of the things I was looking forward to seeing today. I have seen more of it. It looks it looks decent. It, it doesn't look um, doesn't look like one of the problem cars in the midfield. It didn't quite have the steady um, the steady stream of oh, it just looks really good moments that, that the Aston did, for example, but. The one that was really, the bit that was really interesting for me was there was a point in the final hour where uh, Gasly, I think, was driving the Alpine at the time and Piastri's in the McLaren, where they were lapping, they were on track in the quite close company and Gasly got ahead, pulled clear and then just gradually eased clear over the course of a fairly similar stint length. So I would definitely put the Alpine ahead of McLaren at the moment. I'm just not sure whether it was quite behind or in front of the Aston Martin. Well, I think we're going to get a few of these questions answered tomorrow. We know a lot more today than we did yesterday. Just one more day of pre-season testing has gone by in a flash. It seems like only yesterday we had the first day of testing, Scott, although uh, we're almost at the point where it's two days ago, given we're just heading towards midnight. But yeah, fascinating day. Hope we've been able to give you a bit of an idea of what it was all about. Thanks very much, Scott, for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there from our testing coverage. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. There's one more day to go here in Bahrain, so stay with us for everything you need to know from F1 preseason testing. The Athletic.